0: Where's the indictment? The Trump-DeSantis Cold War Goes Hot. A revolt against the revolt at Stanford and TikTok on Borrowed Time. We'll discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Noah Rothman. Rich is out today, but we are joined by Charles C.W. Cook, Madeline Kearns, and MBD Michael Brandon-Doherty. I hope I got that right. You are listening to a National Review podcast. Our sponsors this episode are Fast Growing Trees. More on them in a sec. If for some reason you are not following us on a streaming service, you can remedy that by going to Spotify, iTunes, or anywhere you get your podcasts. If you like where you hear, please give us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear, please forget, I said anything. So, uh, so I guess it was Sunday night, right? Or Monday night? Whenever it was that Donald Trump said he was about to get indicted, he apparently got bad information. Uh, the, this week is come and gone. The grand jury that was reviewing his case reconvened yesterday morning, but they were expected to handle unrelated cases. So all this drama, all this anticipation has built up to nothing, with the exception of the fact that Donald Trump managed to raise approximately $1.5 million off all of this nothing. In the interim, however, there's been a ton of pushback. Uh, Ramesh noticed a CNN panel featuring Van Jones begging Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg to stand down, um, which would make it difficult for him to say that this isn't a political prosecution if Alvin Bragg is taking his cues from primetime CNN panels. Nevertheless, there's a lot of anxiety on the left over what this indictment is, whether it's substantive enough to justify prosecuting a former president. He can get an indictment, all, you know, ham sandwiches and all that notwithstanding. The wheels do seem to be in motion, but... Is Alvin Bragg getting cold feet? Charlie, what do you think? Well, I don't know what Alvin Bragg is
1: thinking. If I were Alvin Bragg, I would get cold feet on this because it doesn't rise to the level. And I don't think that it would be giving in to pressure to acknowledge that having listened to people across the political spectrum. If Alvin Bragg thought that there would be riots and therefore declined to prosecute, that would be a problem. If Alvin Bragg agrees with noted right-wingers like Ruth Marcus that there is not enough here to warrant a prosecution, that would be reasonable. Prosecutorial discretion is a legitimate question. Trump, of course, is hoping that he can do three things by raising the specter of this. The first is to dissuade Alvin Bragg from prosecuting him. The second is to raise money. He didn't actually raise that much money relative to what he was doing a few years ago. One and a half million dollars is a lot of money per se. It's not a lot of money in this context. Uh, And the third thing Trump seems to want to do is to use this phantom prosecution to attack his rivals. And that's what he's begun to do this week with some success, I have to say. It is a little bit alarming to me that this is working, but I now have seen across the political right the claim that if Governor DeSantis of Florida does not stand in the way, stand at the state line with a machine gun and prevent the extradition of donald trump to new york then he is somehow a rhino squish who's insufficiently committed to the cause so this has i think worked out fairly well for donald trump it's worked out less well for alvin bragg because this is not the crime for which trump should be prosecuted whether it will happen remains to be seen
0: michael uh So Andy McCarthy um, took a swing at House Republicans who are saying, you know, that we want to subpoena Bragg. We want to put him on the hot seat and get him to tell us everything he knows. And McCarthy thinks this is a bad move, not just because Congress lacks jurisdiction over local prosecutors. Yeah. Um, What do you make of that?
2: Uh, Andy's right. I think, um, first of all, Bragg hasn't done it yet, right? I mean, uh, it is something uh, I think his office probably is getting cold feet this was a uh, an ill-advised campaign promise to revive this particular charge against donald trump and make this particular case against him on the on the misappropriation of campaign funds or mis mislabeling of them uh to pay off stormy daniels and her by her silence um I don't think Republicans should go after Bragg yet, or, uh, until he does it. And I don't, I don't think Congress should do it. I think this uh, should be done in the court of public opinion. Um, and uh, you know, I don't, I don't know how Bragg gets out of the trap he's kind of set for himself here, though. That's that's where I'm kind of stumped. Is I, I this is. He kind of has to deliver something now, uh, or he's going to have a great explanation of why he's not pursuing this charge.
0: Yeah, I can't imagine how he backs off, given all the anticipation. But it wasn't, I mean, he set the stage for this level of anticipation, so he does only have himself to, to blame. But he, right. didn't for, he didn't retail that an indictment was forthcoming or telegraph that Donald Trump was about to be arrested. That's, that's all Donald Trump's doing. Well, and
2: I think Donald Trump, I mean, I think Donald Trump wants the drama of that. I mean, if I if I were him, I think I'd want that too. Um, I mean, ultimately, uh, you know, we often question Donald Trump's intelligence and his coherence. But one thing he gets instinctively and that his defenders online understand in some way is that, fundamentally populist leaders thrive on this you know connection and identification between themselves and their supporters and so if they're persecuting him they're persecuting you and his supporters have tried to turn this into a kind of test of you know saying hey the weaponization of government for political ends is a problem for conservatives. And the most prominent example of it is the persecution of Donald Trump. Uh and I don't think I actually think there is something to that. There's obviously political logic and sense to it. Um but it's something that like say Ron DeSantis tried to break apart when Ron DeSantis, you know reminded everyone of the substance of the charge which was hush money to a porn star right it's not something that most conservatives are likely to get charged with um whether by
0: human resources or the fbi So, yeah, Madeline, to to that point, I mean, Michael's obviously right that there's this sort of emotional connection that can be made between a populist leader and the public, especially when they're saying in in ill-defined and intangible ways that you've been robbed of your due in life just as I have been by these unseen forces that have all this influence and I'm going to break down their influence. It gets a little trickier when things get more specific, like, for example, a multi-count indictment by... Uh, a Manhattan DA for a very specific campaign finance violation that's, that's tougher to make the case that, you know, they're pro- persecuting me like they would persecute you when you would say, well, I've never had a campaign finance violation. I've certainly never had paid hush money to a porn star to the tune of six figures. <laughs> so um, to, to what degree, you know, to the extent that you can speculate, to what degree is that message resonant with the Republican primary electorate?
3: Well, I, I think that Trump has the advantage in that his headline uh, summary of, of what's going on here is just snappier, sexier. The I'm being persecuted, uh, they're after me again, and unfortunately, there have been so many bad faith investigations and accusations of Trump. Some of it deserved, but the, the way the Democrats have handled this is has historically played into this narrative. So this gives him an advantage, I think, and. With the, with the actual, when you start looking into the specifics, it's, it's actually quite confusing. You know, it's the, Okay, there's a, a charge here of falsifying legal records, but it, it sort of depends on this other charge in order to prosecute. Um, and you, they'll need to find some sort of loophole with the statute of limitations. So this wasn't the best Angle, If you really were hoping for conviction, I don't think this was the best uh, way, way to, to do it. Um, and in fact, I think it was Jim put on the corner that there's a, a district attorney in Georgia who's who's probably kind of mad at Bragg right now because uh, she had a, a, a better strategy here with racketeering and conspiracy charges in connection to Trump and uh, Trump's actions in Georgia, um, which might have been a more solid route to this. But yeah, I I think Trump has the advantage in terms of the Republican base.
0: I mean, prosecuting a racketeering charge is going to be a heavy lift no matter what. But yeah, I can't imagine that the other cases against Donald Trump don't get muddied by this one if it moves forward. Um, So exit question to everybody, starting with you, Madeline. Donald Trump will be indicted, yes or no? By Manhattan so. Attorney uh, Alan Bragg.
3: No, I, I I don't think so.
0: No, Michael.
2: Yeah, I th- I think he will. I think I think it's probably gonna feel like uh, you know a a death grip in his office with all of their reputations on the line uh, and a lot of legal commentators throwing shade at them. But I think they've basically promised this and they've previewed it, so they gotta deliver.
1: Charlie? I think so. If just because Bragg ran on this, it was a promise that he made when seeking the office. He vowed to prosecute Donald Trump. There's the momentum that flows from that,
0: it's difficult to staunch. I tend to agree. It's not that difficult to secure an indictment if you want one from a grand jury, and the wheels are in motion, and it would be very difficult to go back on this um, for you know unfortunately, the consequences will be what they are. But the consequences of the onset of spring are not something you have to just sit back and wait for. You can breathe some life into your backyard right now with fastgrowingtrees.com. From shade, to fresh fruit, to privacy, to natural beauty, let FastGrowingTrees.com help you plant your dream garden at their, with their expert advice and fast, reliable shipping. FastGrowingTrees.com's plant experts curate thousands of easy-to-grow plant shrubs and tree varieties for your unique climate. Meyer lemons, evergreens, and everything in between. No more waiting in lines and hauling heavy plants around. Fastgrowingtrees.com. When you order online, your plants will arrive at your door in just a couple of days. I am a fastgrowingtrees.com customer. I ended up getting last spring a couple of Meyer lemon trees, a few arborvitas, and a free strawberry that they threw in there, which actually produced a lot of strawberries. I was kind of surprised. The Meyer lemons shot up. They've had, you know, they've been inside all winter, they are surviving, and they're about to go outside again, and, and just bloom, they bloomed right away, it was really surprising and very enjoyable, and you too can enjoy Fast Growing Trees with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, you know, everything will look great, right fresh out of the box, join over 1 mil- I'm sorry, 1.5 million happy Fast Growing Trees customers. And, uh, go to fastgrowingtrees.com slash editors now to get 15% off your order, 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com editors. So, Trump and DeSantis. The hot war has arrived. Um, not because Donald Trump hasn't been lobbing volley after volley after volley at Ron DeSantis, but Ron DeSantis has finally deigned to respond. Um... Charlie, you had a fantastic piece on nationalreview.com about some of Donald Trump's attacks on Ron DeSantis' record. Now, the attacks on Ron DeSantis run the gamut. They're incredibly personal, uh, very spurious, kind of slanderous. But then he also goes after some of the substance. You know, Donald Trump's new version, version 2.0, is trying to be this very policy-centric guy. He's delivering policy messages and trying to formulate, uh, you know, an approach to, to campaigning that is more conventional than what we saw in 2016. And then he goes on Truth Social and just accuses him of a uh, of fibophilia. Uh, but that's not, that's where his heart is, where his head is. He's got to attack him on the substance. So he's going after his record in Florida. And you found that. Uh, unpersuasive. Well, I find it profoundly stupid is
1: what I find it. And I think it serves as a fantastic example of what I wrote about earlier this week, which is the choice that conservative voters now face between elevating Donald Trump and advancing conservatism. There is nothing wrong with a candidate for president within a primary criticizing his opponents. If Donald Trump wishes to make the case that he would be a better presidential nominee and a better president than Ron DeSantis, that is, of course, absolutely fine. If Donald Trump profoundly disagrees with decisions that Ron DeSantis or anyone else took in their official capacities, that is fine as well. But he doesn't. We all know that this is pretextual. This is transparently self-serving. Donald Trump lives in Florida, and most of the time... He makes a case that precludes the one that he made this week, which is that Florida is some sort of hellhole. Most of the time, Trump says, sure, Florida is great, his word, not mine. But that's because it's easy for Florida to be great and because of other people. He mentions Rick Scott. He mentions Charlie Crist inexplicably. He doesn't mention Jeb Bush, which is bizarre given that Jeb Bush is the primary reason that Florida shifted into a model of good conservative governance and the primary reason that Republicans have had a stranglehold on the state for 30 years. But that aside, Trump thinks Florida is good. And his argument up until this week has been, yeah, Florida's great, I live here, I love it, but that's just because there's oceans and there's sunshine and people want to move in anyway. He's even gone as far as to say that people have moved in from places like New York because it has low crime in Florida and low taxes, unlike New York. But all of a sudden, Florida is a disaster area. And all of those conservative victories that have been won over 30 years, the sort of conservative victories that, at least in theory, Donald Trump is supposed to be promising to bring to the White House if he were elected again, don't count. So we're told that Florida has a terrible education system. We're told that Florida has a crime problem. We're told that Florida is unsafe. This is not true. Florida's education system is pretty good. It's third overall, according to US News and World Report, third out of 50 states. It's first in higher education, and it's 12th in K-12 through 12 education. That is a good record, and it's a record that has improved and that was helped along by its staying open during COVID. Florida does not have a crime problem relative to the rest of the country. Its violent and property crime rates are lower than the national average. By some measures, it has a crime rate that is at its lowest for uh, 50 years. And places like Miami uh, are trending downwards in murders and other violent crimes. The ideas that Florida is unaffordable, that's one of uh, Trump's lines, and that it was uniquely poor at responding to COVID are also false. This should worry people, because what this tells me is that Donald Trump will say anything, that he is not going to stick to advancing conservatism and criticizing others as being unable to deliver it but that he will say anything in pursuit of destroying people so if florida which really is the model for republican governance along with texas if florida is in the way he will slander it even though he lives there and i think that conservatives i'm not talking about trump cultists and i'm not talking about people who vote republican whatever but conservatives ought to internalize this and recognize that we are not dealing here with somebody who has a pre-existing or uh, external commitment uh, to advancing policy but who is interested only in himself
0: yeah um, so madeline i mean we're pretty familiar with this tactic on donald trump's part where he's sort of creates his own reality, but he also creates his own reality distortion field. He can incept into the minds of Republican voters that which is not true, empirically demonstrably not true. And yet they kind of have a sense of it, or at least they can't dispel it. Um, He's not going to have the same microphone that he had in 2020 or 2016, but he still has the same instincts. And it's not just Republican cultists who are attracted to his messages, especially when those messages conflict with what mainstream media is reporting, which happen to be verifiable facts in some cases. And whenever those, whatever the mainstream media narrative is, if Donald Trump's against it, well then they should be against it too. Does that work in 24?
3: Yeah. So, I mean, Trump's, I I think I agree with Rich and others who have said that the degree to which Trump has gone full blown attacks against DeSantis is a sign of his desperation I mean, this guy is his main threat. And I think his strongest line of attack so far has not been all this nonsense about Florida or whatever else. I, th- I think his main line of attack that is strong is, well, DeSantis is just trying to be me, but I'm the real thing. He's he's the poor man's Trump. Um, and I thought it was interesting, you know, DeSantis finally fighting back and, and speaking about this head-on with Piers Morgan, he's sort of asked, well, what, what is the difference between you and Trump? And he's he's able to point to concrete things, actual action, off of social media, real into the real world. And he's able to say, well, I took a different approach to COVID. Um, I I wouldn't have put up with somebody like Fauci. And he can point to real-life examples of times he's fired um, state officials who wouldn't enforce the law. He can he can point to concrete examples. And is that enough? Is that enough to get past the Trump effect and the magnetic uh, pull that he seems to have on his base? I'm not sure, but it is the it, that's the strongest attack, and I think the strongest def- defense DeSantis has is exactly what he's doing.
0: Michael, I'm gonna I'm gonna set you up here. Are we gonna give the people what they want? Well, because we're gonna talk about. Wait, I want to set you well, up because we're gonna talk a little bit about Ukraine. Take keep that keep that thought because you're gonna. The whole bite at the apple here. But to Matty's point, where he's... The Trump line is, well, he's just the poor man's Trump. He's just aping me. According to the mainstream media, when it comes to Ukraine, that's correct. To summarize DeSantis's back and forths over this, over the course of this week, he gave uh, an interview... He gave a, a statement to Tucker Carlson a couple weeks ago where he said, you know, this is a territorial dispute. It's not in America's interest, and I'm against these platforms. Fixed-wing aircraft and long-range ordnance. Then he speaks with Piers Morgan... And his objections to the ordinance disappear, and he talks about how Putin's a war criminal, and it's good that he's losing. But then he appears on Newsmax last night, where he says we should need to protect our borders, not necessarily Ukraine's. He didn't reduce it to a territorial dispute anymore, which I think he seems to recognize as a mistake. Um, But nevertheless, said it's good that Russia's losing. I think it's good that Russia's losing. It's in our interest that they lose. It's not necessarily in our interests to keep advancing that objective in material terms because it's costing us. Um, is this a mirror image policy? Where's the daylight here? Is there any? Well, th- there is daylight in the sense that Donald Trump is
2: everything that Ron DeSantis said uh, over the past three weeks, even when the emphasis has changed, c- can be reconciled with each with it you know with what he said next or what he said before uh you know maybe the spirit of them is a little different when he's talking to tucker's audience versus piers morgan's audience but it basically is um a a position that is right in the in the center of republican polling where republicans rate immigration and inflation as much higher concerns uh than ukraine um and that was sort of the line that jd vance took which is like hey uh uh i i care more about immigration than this you know my priority is not ukraine so that that fits donald trump's position is a little bit different in that donald trump also says this invasion never would have happened if i were president which actually is i think a, a stronger um uh Position to sell electorally. Some people believe in his kind of madman uh, idea of national security policy, right? Like people, no one's going to make a move, a big move against Donald Trump because Donald Trump is so unpredictable. Um, so actually, <laughs> I, 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 you know, listen. Anyone who knows this podcast knows I'm basically like sold out for Desantis in in 2024. I basically am like, let's let's acclaim him the nominee. He's the only one bringing in new voters into the party in the last seven years. Um, he's the only one that uh, seems to have a real path, a plausible path to winning the presidency itself. Um, but I think Donald Trump's position on Ukraine actually is a little bit stronger for that bit of fiction uh, added to it, which is that it never would have happened uh, under his his continued
0: presidency, which is, um, you know, totally unprovable. Right. It's unfalsifiable. And as you say, it is fiction, but, you know, you can let your imagination run wild. But let's say Donald Trump gets it in his head that he's got to establish a contrast on this one. And he's going to say, listen, you're just, you're just mimicking me in order to take some of my voters away. Everybody sees it. This is this is going to be his weakness, right? You're just a you're just a mini me, and if everybody wants the real thing, they got it right here. How does Ron DeSantis go? Where? Which direction does he lean into? Does he lean into a more interventionist approach and more extroverted foreign policy approach because there are frankly more voters outside the Trump coalition than there are in, or does he out Trump Trump?
2: Um i think he tries to out trump trump on the basis of logic i mean i think that's what he'll he'll try to present a more coherent case and i think um you know dan mclaughlin and jim garrity i think have zeroed in on where desantis seems to be going with his position which is sort of um he's sort of anticipating a a kind of end to the conflict where uh ukraine doesn't get everything it wants uh, out of the conflict, but the conflict ends, uh, and so therefore, does American assistance in the conflict. Um, so I think he tries to go there, um, but again, I think he—I don't think this is where he's going to find his advantage over Trump. Like I—I do I not think that this is, um, it, and partly because it's not the thing that Republican voters care about the most, right? I mean, uh, uh so. I, yeah I don't think he's gonna establish uh, something over Trump on this uh, as much as people want him to embrace a more hawkish or extroverted position uh, that position is one held by you know 18 or 20 percent of the Republican Party right now with you know the part that says we're doing too little to help Ukraine uh, you know that's the maybe the McConnell position but it's currently, Below, well below water among republicans
0: my view is that he's generally going to have to find a more defined position than having to issue frankly things that are subject to exegesis where we have to do a talmudic parsing of what he means and interpret his his remarks in in ways that uh, you know or pr- frankly are are lean into our own priors more than his uh, I, I don't think mm-hmm. he's going to be able to have it both ways for very much longer, but the backdrop to all of this is is polling. There's no. Could you such- do a secret? Could you do a secret plan like uh, like That's right. Nixon? That's right. <laughs> well, actually, that was in the news not, not <laughs> too long ago. But uh, and I'm blocking on why. What was what was the secret plan? There was a secret. Oh, this is the Jimmy Carter thing, where they, yeah, the yeah. New York Times alleged that that Ronald Reagan stole the election from Jimmy Carter in 1980 by orchestrating some sort of a secret. Iranian hostage deal as though the 1980 election was a close one like 1968 <laughs> give me a break so anyway the polling on this um on this uh, issue has been the backdrop uh, and that's probably on Ron DeSantis' mind because if you look at the visualization there's no such thing as a national primary there's no such thing as a head-to-head between Trump and Don- Ron DeSantis but if you were to poll that fiction it's not looking good for DeSantis it's going in the wrong direction it needs yeah. to change that momentum so exit question Who won the week versus Trump DeSantis? Charlie.
1: I don't know. I could make a case in both directions. I think if you look at what Trump has said and what DeSantis has said rationally, you would conclude DeSantis. But the reality distortion field that you adumbrated may change that.
0: Madeline,
3: um, I think Trump, but I think that over the long term, DeSantis could um, could recover. Michael, I think
2: Trump. Um, just speaking to Charlie's point on the the rationality, I wrote a column about this uh, uh, for today. That uh, you know, people like us on this podcast, and probably most of the people listening to us. Like, we think of incoherence as weakness and irrationality as weakness, right? Because our jobs are are to parse arguments, build arguments, make cases, you know, add one premise to the next. And I don't think that's what Trump is doing with DeSantis. I think Trump is just... Uh, I think the point of the incoherence is to demonstrate his, his willfulness, right? That that reality will proceed from his will and his will is that Ron DeSantis should lose. Um, so I think in a sense, Trump had a good week against DeSantis, but he may be punching himself out. Uh, you know, this may be uh, the, the level of his desperation in this is, it speaks to me that uh, he's got a pretty good campaign team now, pretty professional Republican one. And I think they've told him that, uh, DeSantis still has is still to be introduced to a lot of Republican voters across the country and has really high favorable ratings given uh, his lowered stature against Donald Trump anyway and I think Trump is just uh, Trump is like going at him like Mike Tyson used to go after people in the first two three rounds and just try to um, destroy them and intimidate them and uh, into an early knockout. Uh, But, you know, if if DeSantis can survive, I think like Buster Douglas, he can triumph.
0: Yeah, I think it's kind of a roundabout case, but I'm going to make a really provisional claim that Ron DeSantis actually emerged the victor in this week, only insofar as this bizarre phenomenon happened in which the entire political universe turned on a dime and focused exclusively on a policy statement from an undeclared candidate.
2: That's a good point.
0: (laughs) It illustrates the degree to which the Trump Act has gotten so stale and so old, and also how terrified of the efficacy that uh, DeSantis could bring to the Oval Office with his set of policy prescriptions, that he has a target on his back, and uh, Donald Trump is noticing it and wants to reclaim it for himself. So, um, some glimmers of something interesting there perhaps but um what we got zero ambiguity about this week was the absolute hostility across the board bipartisan frustrations with the social media service tiktok he had a hearing in a a house committee yesterday with the ceo of uh tiktok and if there was a soundbite to come out of it it was the ceo who said I don't think spying is the right way to describe it, which is exactly what a spy would say. Sounds like (laughs) the meme of the History Channel, the Aliens guy is like, I'm not going to say it's spying, but it's definitely spying. Um, Madeline, did you catch that hearing? What was your take on it?
3: Yeah, so I... I almost feel sorry for for anyone who um, has to toe the CCP line with <laughs> I say almost feel sorry on these things because as you point out it's very difficult to answer these hard questions directly. You have to resort to this vagueness and sidestepping the issue. There was a a famous case in the, of this in the of the UK when the um, ambassador uh, Chinese ambassador was presented with footage literal evidence of Uyghurs being boarded onto trains blindfolded and he was asked what was this and he he couldn't give an answer so he had to sort of uh, flounder and I think that's what we saw this week. We saw a lot of floundering. I mean TikTok is obviously harmful. It, this is one f- of the few areas you can get uh, Democrats and Republicans to agree on. It's a, a national security issue. We've got the, the Chinese military surveillance programs coming through there data privacy violations, just their they're constant lying about the privacy violations, um, and apologetics for, for genocide, if if not just evasion of, of, of genocide or refusal to condemn it. So it uh, wasn't, wasn't totally inspiring. Certainly all of the concerns that we had about TikTok have remained unresolved at the end of that hearing.
0: There was something in the Wall Street Journal, I think it was Uh, Two weeks ago, thereabouts, I wrote about it for National Review, um, where it focused on the degree to which Democratic campaign professionals are terrified by the prospect of a TikTok ban, um, in part because it is going to alienate young voters. And they quoted not just campaign professionals and unnamed campaign professionals, but even Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo, whose office would be empowered to enforce a congressionally authorized ban saying, quote, the politician in me thinks you're going to literally lose every voter under 35 forever. And that's a sentiment that was echoed by um, disinformation reporter at NBC, Ben Collins, who is intimating without saying it outright that if you were to implement this kind of a ban, you would lose Gen Z forever. Like this would be a formative political experience for them. And they would say, oh, the party that took away my dancing application is, is not a party that I could ever support, like an FDR moment that they would have take with them for the rest of their lives. This seems to me insane, but maybe it's not. Michael, what, what is your sense of how attached <laughs> Gen Z is to, a, to this video microblogging application and whether we should actually consider way against you know, the national security imperatives here, the need of democratic consultants to post 20 second videos of their principal dancing?
2: well listen this is you know it sounds crazy but uh the the questions actually work together in that the more loyal americans are to tiktok and the more that they're that they even feel that their political identity might be wrapped up in it then actually that makes the case more urgent to get rid of it right like you have 150 million users in america supposedly i mean you have you know roughly what 40 percent of the country uh, using this app on their phones and if a significant number are forming their political identity in relation to it yeah of course you want to get rid of it uh, if it's controlled by the Chinese Communist Party um, I don't think I don't think Democrats should be afraid of being the adults on this um, and telling Gen Z like hey <laughs> Instagram has, has come up with a lot of equivalent features here and and other uh social media companies will be anxious to jump into the fray once tiktok's uh balloon is popped um i think just more interestingly you know this there, there are a lot of levels to this conflict which is there's a kind of trade dispute aspect to it where you know americans can say justly hey china you won't allow american social media companies uh free reign in china why should we allow a Chinese social media company? There's also kind of, um, you know, uh, when you when you get another level deeper, I, I know a lot of conservatives are concerned that TikTok is like one front in a reverse opium war. That this is literally like China is is using this to socially maladapt our youth, right? Like get them interested in in crazy identity politics. Uh, warp our civil society uh, and generally weaken us. Weaken our. Um, I don't know if if that is too grandiose to air without sounding like a crazy person. So, so please interrupt me if uh, if you've already fit the tinfoil hat on me. But um, yeah, I think uh, I think all those concerns should be at play and should be investigated. Um, you know what really is the, you know, the Chinese don't allow the American version of TikTok into China either, right? I mean, the Chinese basically like homework apps that, you know, force kids to eat more of Xi Jinping thought, Uh, but they don't allow this. So, you know, it's like the bartender who doesn't drink, you know, you don't trust them fundamentally.
0: So we're not getting anything that that is being said behind closed doors and closed door hearings, classified hearings. But to what extent do you get the impression that this is a real national security imperative, or it's simply a proxy for an expression of uh, hostility towards the Chinese Communist Party? Uh,
2: I think it's a bit of both. Um, you know, obviously, like some of the loudest voices were on this on the Republican side are, you know, China hawk populists like you know, Josh Hawley, who kind of already would have made this case before you gave them a briefing (laughs) on it. Um, so yeah, I think, I think, I think the American, uh, political class has shifted on China very dramatically since 2016. Uh, in some ways I give credit to Donald Trump for doing it. Um, But, yeah, I I have no idea what they're saying behind closed-door briefings, but I do know that every tech journalist who writes about TikTok seems very concerned. Uh, Every tech journalist who knows about tech seems very concerned about the privacy and spyware implications of TikTok. The other ones who are just industry hypists should be ignored.
0: So, Charlie, the influence, influence operation designed to, you know, throw brushback pitches at democrats and scare them away from banning tiktok uh, has focused has been twofold first it's saying you're going to lose young voters forever and you can't win without them and the second is you're going to lose your self-conception right as the party of inclusivity and openness and anti-racism you're noticing this right something something along the lines of a pushback against this initiative because it is anti-chinese in an ethnic sense
1: The Chinese know how to talk to American progressives and they've begun to do so with influencers operating on behalf of TikTok, pushing those buttons, xenophobia, racism, generational war, and so on. I should say that while I might privately share some of the reservations about TikTok that Michael outlined the potential social consequences of the widespread use of TikTok in the United States could never be sufficient grounds to ban it. That would be a First Amendment violation on its face, and it would set a terrible example. If you believe that TikTok is doing bad things to young people, that's fine. But so is Twitter. We are, I suspect, unlikely or unable to ban Twitter as a result. Insofar as there are people out there who want to use an excuse of Chinese aggression to ban TikTok, I would depart from them. But on the technical side, I share the worry here. This app seems to me to be Chinese spyware. And I am surprised that so many of the people who instinctively understand the privacy implications of American corporations much more transparently spying on us are skeptical or silent when the owner is Chinese and is essentially joined at the hip with a Chinese communist party. Progressives are, Fairly outspoken about data collection. One of the reasons that Apple has made such a push on this is that progressives have been successful, and I think this is a good thing, in bringing this question to the fore. We worry about Facebook and Twitter and the Amazon echoes in our home. But when it's TikTok, the question is often poo pooed. And I think that's strange because TikTok is by far and away the worst of the lot. I'm not just talking here about the company's willingness to spy on journalists. I have seen engineers, to the extent that it is possible, obviously it's not open source, reverse engineer and look into how TikTok operates and conclude that it is tracking a huge amount of data from Americans. It is not paranoia that has led many institutions in government and elsewhere across the world to bar tiktok's use the british parliament i believe has just or is about to ban tiktok from the parliamentary building and offices and with good reason there is something to worry about here uh, i i I draw these two pictures opposite one another to make the point that while I don't like TikTok, I do not think that this is the sort of decision that should be taken lightly. I do not think that this is the sort of decision that should be taken in response to a moral panic or a political dislike of TikTok. Just as it would be ridiculous for the Democrats to decline to do what is necessary because they're worried about offending their voters, uh, so it would be Ridiculous for Republicans to jump on board enthusiastically because they've noticed that the vast majority of the people who go viral on TikTok do not vote for them. But there is a technical problem here. The case is compelling and it is real, and I suspect that it is going to prevail because the more we learn, the more unanswerable that proposition becomes.
2: Well, and can I just jump in one more thing? I mean, if we if we treat TikTok as not just the property of Byte dance, but of the the Chinese state which it Uh, is right the Chinese state is an absolute frightening innovator in uh, digital surveillance and spying and manipulation right like it 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 came out last year when there were protests against um, the Chinese COVID policies that broke out across China that you know individual phones were they the individual people took with their phones disappear from their phone right like um you know the chinese censor their internet and uh, 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 uh basically like if i'm thinking of a, a company that acts like that uh, that censors the way it does in China is not the company I want programming the stimulation <laughs> of of Americans, right? Like, like in, in a sense, like the approach is, is the opposite. In one country there's censorship, in the other one there's overstimulation. Um, but yeah, I mean the, the, this is a sinister uh, firm, right? Because we're talking about a communist state not just a uh a, a, a tech company
0: yeah there was a, a point that was they attempted in the hearing the questioners attempted to make this point frequently on um, the degree to which there is um some sort of distinction between ByteDance dance and uh beijing and the, and the communist party And the moiety between the CCP and private enterprise in Beijing is very permeable. There's not really a distinction between the two like we would observe them here. And the CEO did not acquit himself well by attempting to create, uh, establish some sort of distinctions between him and the people to whom he's responsible in the CCP. I thought it was very unconvincing. Moreover, more than half the union now, I think well over more than half the union states in the and in the federal government, ban this application from government devices. It seems to me asinine to believe that you can keep this app private so that the same individuals who don't have this de- application on their device for that is a government device will have the same application on their private device, on the same network. It doesn't make a lot of sense. But the counterattack is real, and it could be very effective, particularly targeting as it is democratic sentiment and sensibilities. So the exit question is, does TikTok get banned? Madeline.
3: Um, yes, although I, I don't yet know what that looks like exactly.
0: Charlie.
1: Yes, I think Maddie's right. It will be banned, quite what the ban means, I don't know. And this is another area in which we should be sceptical. The federal government coming in and in some capacity deleting an application from the internet or blocking its traffic would be a big deal. And those of us who are skeptical of TikTok should also be skeptical of the remedy and insist that it is done in a way that does not set a bad precedent or damage the internet as it currently exists and that might make it quite difficult to achieve in any meaningful way so I think Maddie's
2: right yes but we'll need to see what that means Michael I'm going to go even further than Charlie yes it's going to be banned and banning TikTok is effectively the United States government very recently was the symbol of globalization, of total American hegemony, uh, even unto the ends of the entire planet. And this is a symbol that no, actually the internet and the information sphere is going to be divided up into civilizational spheres in the future. Uh, and we are just one of them. We're the largest and most powerful, but Russia and China and perhaps the Islamic world eventually will assert themselves uh, in this way and create internets for themselves. And there there won't be much talk between them.
0: Well, that's a dour note. Um, Sorry. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a bit more positive about the, particularly the forces of commerce, which I think are going to take on a far more leading role than they have at this point. There is a real demand for this sort of product. And if you uh, recognize that demand and satisfy that demand in ways that don't compromise national security, I think we'll find far less of a gap. So does it get banned? I'm on the fence about that. I don't necessarily know that there's the stomach for it, particularly because of the logistical and legal implications of it, not just the you know, social and national security imperatives that are animating it. But I have a little bit more faith, I think, in the power of of commerce to justify the establishment of something that suffices to meet this demand when it is, when it is truncated artificially. Madeline, Moving on to Stanford University, you guys talked about this briefly about a week ago on last Friday's podcast. To summarize, Dean Jennifer Martinez at the Stanford Law School has formally apologized to Judge Kyle Duncan, who was shouted down not only by Stanford law students, but this DEI administrator, uh, Tyrion Steinbeck, who is now on leave. Um, You should go read Jeff Blahar's piece on National Review about this. Stanford Law School sends entire class to detention. Uh, Dean Martinez's letter is is quite good there. But uh, Ms. Steinbeck has a counterattack. She has an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal yesterday where she, de- she defends herself and her abhorrent conduct. She says she was using de-escalation techniques like it's a hostage situation, which I guess it kind of is. Um, but she wasn't really de-escalating much of anything. Uh, if you watch that video, she says, quote, I believe that we would be better served by leaders who ask themselves is the juice worth the squeeze, which she said repeatedly in that uh, confrontation. She defines the juice as what we are doing and the squeeze as the intended and unintended consequences and costs of what we are doing. Um, She further concludes that, uh, you know, is there any way that we can stop blaming and start to talk and listen to each other? She didn't talk or listen to anyone. She behaved like a buffoon like a snarling buffoon, and she made a fool of herself and is apparently, judging by the subcont- the subtext of this op-ed, rather chastened and kind of ashamed of her actions because she's not defending her actions. She's defending the actions of what, I guess, she, wish- she wishes she did. But um, Madeline, what is, your, what is your take on, on Miss Steinbeck's, I guess, defense of herself and how Stanford Law has acquitted itself in the wake of this humiliating episode?
3: Well, I think the Dean has got it exactly right. Uh, uncompromising defence of, uh, it's it's not just about free speech. It's, it's it's actually more significant than that. It's what is a law school supposed to do? What, what sort of environment is it supposed to create? And, and what sort of student is it supposed to have at the end of it? And it's certainly not at the kind that Miss Steinbach is encouraging. It's not this shouting people down, uh, using threats and insults instead of reason and an argument. I mean, that's if you if if that is what the law school has become, then the the lawyers are, are going to be pretty appalling by the end of it. Um, so I think the dean recognises that, and that's what this um, mandatory detention thing. It's a it's a instructional course on on why the heckler's veto is illegitimate, and how you actually conduct yourself uh, as a reasonable person, or in this case, as a lawyer. Um, and I think I think that is the, the right way to go about it. I mean, we've seen what happens when schools uh, fail in this respect. So another recent. Uh, college story was the one of Wellesley Women's College who um, have have been having another student mutiny about their gender admissions policy. Now, they actually lost this battle in 2015 when they opened, this is a women-only college, but they opened it to biological men who identify as women. And now the students want to open it further to basically anyone. Um, whether you are a man who identifies as a woman or not. You might just be a man who identifies as non-binary or whatever else. Um, And what happens is the women's college stops being a women's college because they appeased the student demands in the same way that Stanford Law would stop being a serious law school if they appeased the student's demands. And so really the only way through this madness is to just direct from the top, have your authority... Your students, if you wanna be part of this school, you're gonna to have to sign up to our message. If not, leave, goodbye. Like that's that's always an option for you, but we're not changing fundamentally what we're about uh, to suit you.
0: So last week, um, you guys were asked if this was an inflection point in this you know, terrible behavioral pattern that we see from young adults. Uh, a week later, in the cold light of day, what, what do you what do you think about it now?
3: Well, I, I think that the fact that the dean has uh, has doubled down uh, c- continues to be sort of encouragement. But the, for for every Stanford Law, there's like it seems to be like 500 more Wesley colleges. So I'm not I'm not that op- optimistic. I can't remember what I said last week, but <laughs>
0: <laughs> I don't remember hopefully, either.
3: But, hopefully, uh, it's consistent with I that. Think the general
0: impression that I recall was that it was an inflection point. Does anybody have anybody revised their opinion, Charlie? Well, I think that what Stanford
1: institutionally has done is broadly good, although they should have fired this DEI woman out of a cannon and they haven't yet achieved that. But I think that the aftermath of this incident has yielded a stellar example of what we're up against in that this woman went into a safe space and wrote about her experience in the press, which is full of people, especially on the younger side, who are sympathetic to the argument that she was making and continue to be and will echo that argument and encourage that argument until there are consequences for doing so. So when she says, is the juice worth the squeeze, what she means is... Is it worth you speaking if a mob is going to come and try to stop you? That is quite literally a defense of the heckler's veto. It's not close to it. It doesn't approximate it. It's not connected to it in some way. That is a defense of the heckler's veto. She is saying that in her estimation, if enough people get cross or decide to behave badly... It's not worth those whom they are targeting to persist. And within a free speech system such as the one that Stanford insists that it has, she doesn't get to do that. She does not get to engage in that balancing act. She did not defend herself. She reiterated the position that was wrong when it was made and that Stanford is supposedly attempting to uh, oppose so I think that a lot of what has come out of this is good Stanford could have said yeah the Federalist Society shouldn't have invited this judge but until it makes it clear that it is literally that case that is antithetical to what it stands for and it gets rid of the people who are going to use the power that they've been given to advance that case
0: then nothing is going to change Michael heartened or disheartened by the week's events Um, heartened in that I I appreciate
2: Stanford trying to hold back the wolf at the door. Uh, Again, it's the problem is you haven't fired anyone. Like there is no use for these DEI consultants and deans other than as as progressive political activists on campus, right? I mean that's that's what they're hired to do um so you know that that has nothing to do with improving academic standards at an institution uh, or assisting students in academic achievement right it's it's a purely uh commissariat job uh and until you get rid of the commissars you will continue to have you know a paid commie on your on your, on staff uh but I'm, I'm heartened that you know there's some recognition by the institution that this is uh uh that the di dean can't rule the entire school um and all functions at it so we'll see i mean i, I would have expected um you know a more mealy-mouthed reaction i than the one we got. So I guess that that's why I'm hardened.
0: Yeah, generally that's my view is that just by virtue of the fact that this became a national story and that everybody behaved like it was abhorrent. If if this had not risen to that level, nobody would be having any sort of reaction to this. So just by virtue of the fact that you get a glimpse of it and it's repulsive and they have to behave like it's repulsive just to comport with you know normal human sentiment how they respond to this sort of behavior is is uh heartening to a certain degree moving on to um, some happier talk Maddie you've been commuting recently you have a short commute but it's a desirable one
3: yes uh, so I have been going into the office uh, just well I, I it's not even consistent I, I go in when I when I feel like it and I can walk to work which is great and it's just it's um, simultaneously, quite sad because hardly anyone from Nash View actually lives in New York anymore. <laughs> but it's also really nice because it reminds me of uh, pre-pandemic times before everybody relocated uh, when there would be camaraderie and some people do go in. Andrew Stutterford sometimes goes in. Jimmy Quinn sometimes goes in. So it's, it's always a, a delight to... Bump into you're, colleagues and in the. You're guilty, the me, Maddie. I know, Michael. Me. Come on. <laughs>
1: you're doxing people, Maddie. You're giving people real time information.
3: <laughs> people who sometimes come to the office. But uh, anyway, yeah. It's-
0: I was in once, so I'll defend. I had a sandwich. It was delicious. <laughs> um, Michael, you've been re watching uh, a Scorsese classic.
2: Yeah, I caught. re caught The Departed this week. And, um, you know, I've. I always thought the film was awesome, <laughs> uh, but I in the past I kind of fell in with the elite uh, opinion that the only flaw in the film was Jack Nicholson because he was he was chewing the scenery, while everyone else was giving like a perfect performance, right? Like the the chemistry between Alec Baldwin and Matt Damon and. Uh, Leo DiCaprio and, and Mark Wahlberg and Martin Sheen is like off the charts throughout the whole movie. Uh, it's really gripping, but there's Jack kind of chewing the scenery. Now over the top almost humorous uh, performance by him. it would be too unrelievedly tense. Um, and so yeah, kudos to that it was it's probably the most brilliant remake ever because it's a remake of Infernal Affairs, a Hong Kong movie. Um, and the last great Hong Kong cop movie that will have ever been made, sadly. Um, Anyway, it's great.
0: Rewatch it. I didn't know that was a remake. Speaking of uh, classics, Charlie, you've been going back to a BBC mainstay. Miss Marple,
1: Agatha Christie character. I think there's a new series, but I'm watching the old one from the 1980s. The famous one that I heard about when I was a kid, but have actually never seen it. It's partly because it started before I was born, but it's also because it finished before I was interested. And so I missed that sweet spot, and I'm making up for it now, and it's absolutely terrific. Miss Marple is played by Joan Hickson, who does it to perfection, and you will spot some very famous English actors in some of their first... Roles. If you watch this, the one that we watched last night featured Samantha Bond, and I don't think she could have been more than about nineteen.
0: Madeline, I think you've actually effectively shamed me because <clears throat> my my uh, uh, bit is going into New York City. O- over last weekend with my wife we left the compound in an undisclosed location in the woods of new jersey and made it into the city and and had korean barbecue in k-town or those little tables where you cook it yourself oh, which is i just love those. fabulous and so just fun. a wonderful meal and we had a blast in town and just reminded myself that you know we're really not too far from this jewel of civilization and never take advantage of it so all right gentlemen and lady editor's picks michael what's yours
2: great choices this week uh, I'm going with John McCormick's it's later than it seems in the Republican primary I think this is primary would be like and John's is suggesting uh, how often um, the uh, leader in the end was a leader in the early polling and um, you know he, he kind of gives some suggestions about what kind of race maybe DeSantis might want to run uh, given the early position uh, so i out Charlie.
1: Well, I'm going to take Michael's piece seriously, not literally, for 2024. I won't re-outline the piece because Michael did so already in our discussion of Donald Trump. I hope Michael is wrong, as so often, but I think <laughs> I think he might not be, and that's why I'm choosing this piece because it's
2: it, funny, but the piece was a response to your piece a little bit.
1: Right? Well, right, and I'm picking it because this is a great. Sammy rejoined, and I think you could be correct.
0: Ah. It's <laughs> true that <laughs> that, 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 hurt. that hurt coming out. Yeah, you could feel it. <laughs> Madeline.
3: Uh, my pick is Jeffrey Blair's uh, piece on Stanford Law. Um, it's just, it's, it's really well done and very witty. So, highly recommend.
0: I had a double barreled editor's pick, which was also John McCormick's that Michael talked about, but I'm going to uh, add. Uh, Phil Klein's latest in there as well, what to pay attention to in 2024 Republican primary polls, um, where he kind of assesses out what I think is, is hard to dismiss now, that it is shaping up to be a two-man race. It's really a one-man race with an also-ran. But that all the other also-rans that are getting into this race perceive themselves to be the alternative to Trump and are therefore training their fire on everybody but Trump, which is a very familiar 2016 dynamic, and we all know how that turned out. So hopefully he's wrong, but it doesn't seem like he is at the moment. But that's going to be it for us. You've been listening to a National Review podcast. Any rebroadcast, retransmission, or account of this show without express written permission of National Review Magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Schutte, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Maddie. And thank you to the absent Rich Lowry. And thank you to our advertiser, Fast Growing Trees. And especially thanks to all of you for listening. We're the editors, and we'll see you next time.